Okay, well, if you don't have your Bibles with you, the scripture is printed in your bulletin. I'm going to place to take notes there on page 7. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18. Give ear now. This is, this is God's holy word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the, same time, or, but at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the, Mehol, uh, the Meholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and this thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, 
that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. This is God's word. Well, so we're tracing the life of David. You know, we've been watching how David's life has gone, and we've been watching what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on someone's life. Things begin to change, right? We saw that David was anointed by the Spirit, and then you know, he's chosen by God to be God's replacement as the king in chapter 16. In chapter 17, we, see, or we all see in chapter 16, David all of a sudden gets chosen to be part of Saul's royal court. So he's like in the right place. You know, he's, he's in line to take over for Saul. In chapter 17, we saw it with David and Goliath, right? David, by the power of God's spirit, is able to go and vanquish the impossible enemy, right? He takes on Goliath by the power of God in his life and vanquishes the mighty Goliath, you know? And so you watch David, there's this trajectory in David's life, right? You see things are... Once he's chosen by God, there's this upward arc, right? David is ascending into greatness. It's like he's almost ascending into heaven, right? And I got to ask, like, do you know anybody whose life is like that? I mean, just stop for a second. You know, you read about David, and does that remind you of anybody in your life? You know, someone where everything just seems to go right for him? Any of you feel like your life is that way? I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, as we live our lives, as we try to make our way in the world, um, well, in fact, there are people that would say that, you know, well, this is the reason you should become a Christian because if you become a Christian, your life will work out. Your life will look like David's. You know, God will choose you. He'll love you. He'll put his spirit in you and nothing will go wrong, right? All your problems will be over. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever heard that? I think what's interesting here is that what we see is that things don't actually work out so cleanly for David, right? As life has been on this upward trajectory, as things are going well and better and better and better for David, here what we see, like conflict arises. What David encounters here in terms of Saul, Saul who chose him, Saul who was thrilled with him, Saul who was excited about sending him out to fight, all of a sudden, Saul turns on him. And so David's facing a setback. David's being confronted. The person who loved him, the person who looked to him to provide soothing comfort, all of a sudden is turning on him. How's he going to handle it? And for me, as I think about this, and, and we look at this upward trajectory, we all would love our lives to look like that, right? We all wish our lives, our, our careers would look like that, right? Our relationships would look like that. We wish it. And yet... I think if we are honest, you know, what we see is that it just doesn't work out that cleanly. 
you know, things aren't that clean for us. And so how do we face setbacks? How do you face it when things go wrong? When something you didn't expect happens, when all of a sudden there are people around you that seem to hate you, they're not, and they're against you, and it seems like they're trying to make your life miserable. How do you handle that? Well, we're going to see this as we kind of watch the interaction between Saul and David. And so I'm going to give you three points today. Um, and, and you can write these down now. We'll come back to them. First, we're going to see Saul spiraling down. Okay, Saul spiraling down. Second, David stopped short. David stopped short. And then third, David up the gospel way. David up the gospel way. Okay, so first, Saul spiraling down. This is verses 6 through 16. Saul and David and the, I guess the army of Israel is returning from David's battle with Goliath. Okay, that's what verse 6 tells us. Yeah, they're on their way back from striking down the Philistine. And as they're going back, the crowds are heralding them. The women are coming out and they're singing and they're celebrating. They're rejoicing because they know the enemy's been vanquished, right? They know that the Philistines have been defeated. And so they come running out to meet King Saul. Right? That's what verse 6 says. They came out singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And so it's almost like, um, like a ticker tape parade. Right? Everybody's running out. They're all praising and heralding Saul. And they sing. Right? And the women who are singing, they sing to one another. Verse 7, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Right? They're singing. They're praising David and Saul. They're praising them for, for their mighty triumphs in battle. The problem here is that Saul misunderstood them. Right? Instead of joining in their celebration, instead of experiencing the praise and, and reveling in it, Saul misunderstands. Right? Verse 8 says, Saul was very angry and this thing displeased him. It's almost like Saul thinks what the women saying was, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Right? Saul thinks that they're making a comparison. Saul thinks that they are rating David higher than him. And really, it's not true. It's not true. Saul assumes, though, that these women are coming out to make fun of him or to put him down or to exalt David over him. That's how Saul interprets their song. Okay, and I think if you wrestle with the text, it's pretty clear that, that Saul is misunderstanding them. Right, because verse 6 tells us they came out to meet King Saul. Right, it gives us their intention. They went out to praise their king. Verse 6, with songs of joy. They're not going to insult him or exalt David over their king. I mean, plus, everything that David did falls under the umbrella of Saul, right? Saul's the king. So all of David's exploits end up redounding to Saul's glory anyways, right? So there's no shame in saying David slayed 10,000 because Saul gets the credit for that anyways. What this is, it's Hebrew poetry, okay? This was one of the ways, it's one of the literary techniques that was used in Hebrew. It's a centuries-old stylistic thing where a number is used in the first half of a verse, and then the number's augmented either by adding one or by adding a zero. 
at the end of it in the second half of the verse. Okay, um, in the Proverbs, it says this a lot. There's one famous place where it says, there are six things, even seven that the Lord hates, things he cannot stand, right? In Proverbs 30, there's four instances where it says, there are three things, yet even four. Three things, yet even four. I mean, this is just a way that Hebrew poetry worked. Okay, and so these women, they're not trying to insult their king. They're not trying to say, oh, you're this, but David's this. What they're doing is they are celebrating, and they're just saying, man, y'all have slain a whole lot of people. (laughs) Like, that's all they're saying. That's what the women, and they're rejoicing in what God is doing through David, through Saul. You know, but again, all of this rounds up under Saul. Micah 6, 7 says this, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams for an offering, with 10,000 rivers of oil? You see that? It's not making a comparison that like rivers of oil are better. It's just another place where in the Bible it uses this image of thousands and then ten thousands. And so they're lavishing praise using the largest number that's available to them in Hebrew. Okay, there is no other single number that's bigger than this. And so this is what they're doing. But Saul can't hear that. Why? Yeah. Saul is fallen prey to negative emotions. Okay? Saul has been trapped and is now enslaved by his internal negative emotions. He's dealing with jealousy. Right? Saul is jealous of David. Isn't this how this works? Right? Come on, if you're honest. Right? When you're jealous... Can't you smell, if you're jealous of somebody, you smell every compliment that they get, right? You also hear every compare, you read into and anything anybody says. You know, if, it's, if they say, you know, if they mention the two of you together, right? You, you can read into that, oh, they're comparing us, right? And this is what jealousy does, right? His, so Saul's emotions get the better of him. And it's not just jealousy, right? It's anger first, um, verse... Uh, what does it say, verse 8? Yeah, Saul was very angry at this. Because for him, he thought, how dare they make David out to be better than me? You know, and Saul's got this insecurity that's controlling him, right? I know God has rejected me. I know he's going to take somebody else out. It's pretty clear. It's probably going to be David. You know, David's now taking over. Where does that leave me? Right? I mean, insecurity will do this to us. It'll make us respond. It'll keep us from being able to join the party, right? I mean, if you remember the parable of the prodigal son, you know, this is part of what keeps the older brother out of the party, right? Refuses to come in because he's jealous, he's insecure. Saul's jealous of David's accomplishment. And then I think the biggest issue is fear, right? Going back to fear. And it's funny because last chapter we saw that Saul was terrified of Goliath. But he didn't, he didn't deal with it. You know, he didn't deal with his fear appropriately. And so because he didn't deal with his fear appropriately, we realize that his fear is not gone anymore. Like his fear is still there. And now instead of being afraid of Goliath, now he's actually afraid of David. And so this is what happens. If you don't deal with your negative emotions appropriately, if you don't run to God, with your negative emotions and deal with them, you, you know, with him. If you don't lay them before him, confess them and, and, and deal with them, they won't go away. Even if Goliath is slain, your fear doesn't go away and it will crop up in another place. Your insecurity will crop up again. Your jealousy will crop up. 
Now, what's interesting about Saul is that not only is he being controlled by these negative emotions, but he's also, I mean, it's, it's being made worse because he's isolating himself. Okay, this is kind of subtle, but look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, he was angry, this displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. Saul's not talking to anybody here. He's talking to himself. Right? He's not talking to the women. He's not saying, you have done this. What's going on? Why are you doing this? He's saying they. And it's almost like the text is saying that he's talking to himself. He's talking about the women, not to the women. And so I think what we're seeing here is that his fear and his insecurity sort of are driving him farther inward. Isn't this how it works for us? Right? I can't really talk about this. I'm kind of, you know, and then there's a the whole shame thing. I shouldn't really be feeling this way. I should, you know, I should be better than this. I can't tell somebody I'm feeling this way, or I can't confess this out loud. I don't want anybody to think that I'm this insecure. And so it drives us farther in, right? And this is how we deal with this. One author said this, what would have happened if Saul had had the courage to actually talk to the women? The women would naturally have sworn from the bottom of their hearts that they had in no way intended to extol David at the king's expense. Right? Saul could have then taken a deep breath and allowed the pain of his incorrect interpretation to pass. Oh, cool. All right. They aren't comparing me to him. They're not making him out like this. You know, it would all come crumbling down, right? This, these things that we erect for ourselves in the privacy of our own thinking, right? These things that just sort of get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, if we actually talk about them, you know, we realize they're actually either they're, they're not true or they just sort of crumble or they don't seem so big anymore when we mention them. But no, not for Saul. Saul's fear and insecurity, back to the quote, do not allow him to enter into a dialogue. Saul doesn't give the women a chance to reveal their intentions and their good faith as yet and to cure him of the darkness within with their comforting assurances. He does not allow them into his heart, and that is just as much his loss as anyone's. The result is that he's left alone, tormented and embittered in black thoughts after an encounter with his subjects, an encounter that I imagine Saul endured by publicly maintaining the, the facade of a cheerful conqueror. So thus, the rejected one intensifies his rejection. And what we see here is that the very next morning, jealousy drives him all the way to attempted murder. This is kind of how it works. Right? The downward spiral. You know, and... I mean, this is true for both Christians and non. So if you're here and believing in Jesus, here and not believing in him, this same thing traps all of us. These emotions, right, if we give in to them, if we don't deal with them appropriately, fear, anger, jealousy, insecurity, it'll take all of us and just flush us down the toilet. It'll get a hold of us. And sometimes it's not your whole life. Sometimes it just starts in a little small area of your life, right? But if you let it go, it's like it builds a beachhead and it starts to take over. And we've got to be careful about this. Because after a while, you end up doing things you never thought you would. You know, verse 11, Saul takes the spear and says, I'll pin David to the wall and hurls it at him. Twice. You know, I've had times in my own life where I feel like I've woken up and thought, how in the world did I get here? 
like, how in the world did it get this bad in my life? Have you ever felt that way? It's almost like you're slapping yourself going, man. And then you look and you think, well, you know what? I made the decision there, and then I came to here, and then I made another decision here, and another decision. You know, and it's like you can see how you got there, but then you're like, oh, God, I'm ashamed of where I am. I can't believe I just did this. I mean, this is what Saul is going through. Now, it's interesting because we're going to see later on, there are times when Saul does kind of slap himself silly and wake up where he has moments of rationality in the midst of his, you know, of his, of getting in control by these emotions. But instead of coming back to God, he just goes back to these emotions. He goes back to the fear. He goes back to the, you know, back to the insecurity, back to the jealousy and the anger, and it just spirals down again. And so... I mean, I bring all this stuff up because if you're locked in this, Christian or not, if you've got emotions like this that are controlling you, Saul, or at least the narrator here is saying, boy, uh, wake up and come back to God. The only person that can free you from this stuff is Jesus. Y'all see this? This is, uh, let me tell you the story about this. So Lainey has an iPod, okay? And I learned, she's got one of these iPod touches, okay? And, uh, and I learned after we got it that it comes with this GPS connecting thing so that if you work out or you run or, or you bike, it'll actually keep track of how far you go. And it says that you take the GPS device and you put it in your shoe, Okay, and then you connect it with the, the iPod itself and you carry it with you and it tells you how far you've run. Okay, and it tells you how fast you're running per mile, all that kind of stuff. So really helpful for me. You know, I, I've never had one of these things. I've always wanted one. I've had a friend who had it. And I thought, oh, this is great. So, you know, I go digging through here and I pull this out and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. You know, like, look at this. It's this cloth thingy. You know, and I'm like, man, where's the, where's the GPS device thing in there? I'm like looking at it in the light. And I'm thinking, man, they do amazing things. And so, so I, I get the iPod out, you know, I'm getting ready for the AIDS run, you know, it's a few weeks ago. And, uh, and I'm, and so I'm like trying to do the link thing. I hit the little button with the application on the iPod, right? I click on it and it says, okay, syncing with the GPS. And, uh, and so there I am and it's like, you know, flashing, waiting for it to connect. It's not connecting. And then this thing comes up and it says, try walking around. Okay, because if you walk around, then it has this sense that it's moving, I guess. And so there I go. So I'm walking around our house, okay, down the hallway, through the living room, you know, the dining room, through the kitchen. And I'm watching this thing, and <laughs> it's still trying to sink, and it's not sinking, right? And I must have, I mean, how long? 15 minutes? I'm walking around. I'm like, what's going on? I stop it, and I restart it. I turn it off. I turn it back on, do the whole reboot thing. And it's not working. It will not connect, and I'm thinking, well, this isn't, you know, this is messed up, you know. And so then I, I go back and I get the instructions out, you know, and I'm thinking, well, and, and I'm looking at, you know, it gives you a list in the instruction manual of what's included in the packaging. And um, so it's, it says, you know, iPod, earphones, cleaning cloth, um, and there's nothing else. And I'm like, well, where's the GPS device? And then it hits me, like, this is a cleaning cloth. <laughs> So, that's not good. It was awful. I'm like, 15 minutes, like, there I am. And Lainey's laughing at me. The kids are laughing at me. And 
So, yeah, so this is a cleaning cloth. But, you know, like, this is just the genius of Apple marketing because when you open up the package, this thing is rolled up real tight like this. looks like almost like a little cigar or cigarette. It's rolled up like this, and it's in this, like, plastic case, so it looks really cool. It doesn't look like you don't do that. With... Anyways, so this is a cleaning cloth, and it, no matter how hard you try, no matter how long you try to get it to sync, it's not going to sync up with your iPod. It's not going to tell you how far you've run. And so why am I bringing this up? I mean, not this is what Saul is doing with his life, okay? Saul is allowing his emotions, he's allowing his jealousy, his insecurity, his fear, and his anger, and he's trying to pursue happiness by obeying these emotions, okay? I mean, that's what Saul is trying to do. Saul thinks, if I just give in to my jealousy and remove the one I'm jealous of, if I allow my anger to drive me to murder the one I'm angry at, then I will be happy. If I submit to my insecurity and my fear and squeeze harder to remove the one who is in the way of me having a long kingdom, then I'll be happy. And I guess what I'm saying is that if you are living your life by your negative emotions, you are not going to connect to happiness. I mean, that's the point, that Saul is, like, Saul is tragic, you know, and I think his, the tragedy of Saul's character becomes even more so when we recognize how much of Saul is in us, you know, how easy it is for us to give in to our anger and lash out thinking that'll make us feel better, how easy it is for us to give in to our jealousy and our fear and our insecurity and think that if we do that, that will lead us to being happy. Because that's basically what we, what we think when we act that way, when we act out on that. We're saying, God, this is going to make us happy. And so Saul is on his way down. And again, when we, Christian or not, when we give in and follow Saul like this, we're on our way down and there is no hope for happiness. So we'll talk about the answer there. I mean, the answer is that if, if you're in that place, I mean, Jesus would say, come to me and find freedom from that. You don't have to be controlled. Confess to me that you have been giving in. Confess your jealousy, your anger. Say, Jesus, I have been angry and controlled by it. I've been jealous and insecure and controlled by it. I've been fearful and controlled by it. I'm sorry. I haven't been living my life trusting you. Will you forgive me and help me have a relationship with you? I mean, that's the road back. That's the road out. It's the road to freedom. And that's if Saul would just... So this brings us to our second point. Um, so look in Saul spiraling down. David stopped short is our second point. Saul sets his sights on David, and this is what happens. You know, oftentimes if you find that you're in the place where you're doing what God wants... Or if you are, um, yeah, if things are working out for you in ways they aren't for other people, they may lash out at you. Okay, I mean, just reality. There are times when people will come at you and attack you because you are a Christian, and they don't like you. They don't like that you have comfort or security. They don't like that you have a faith that gives you hope. If they don't have that, if they don't share it, 
okay? And so we need to understand that. When, when, you, when people persecute you or when people make you suffer, sometimes it's because what's going on inside of them is something like Saul. Okay, and sometimes that just helps if you can understand that because it makes you understanding, right? It makes you better understand where it's coming from, where their attack is coming from, and it may help you love them and care for them even if they're mistreating you. Um, but for David, I feel like what this is telling us is that for David, things are like he, he's stopping short here. Like David has to face the fact that it's not going to be this straight line up into the heavenly places for him. Okay, what David is experiencing here, it's like a wake-up call. You know, the, that life isn't going to be all fun times and pass the soda crackers, right? That life isn't just going to be about smelling the roses and, you know, God's just going to waltz you into the kingdom and waltz you up to the throne and remove all of your obstacles out of your way. You know, this is reality check for David. Um, in a sense, the Goliath conflict is understandable because we're at war with the Philistines, right? And so that probably didn't surprise David. But then to realize, wait a second, the king himself is turning on me. The king loved me two chapters ago. I played for the king. I soothe his soul. And what David's finding out is that he is the reason for the torment, right? Every time Saul sees David, he's reminded now of the one who's taking over for him. Every time he sees David, instead of following David and, and, and connecting to the God that David has, Saul reacts and, 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 and lashes out. And I think what this does is this sort of destroys the myth of the upward trending life. Okay? Like some people think that cri- the Christian life is supposed to be this gradual upward trend, right? That the, just the longer you live with God, the more things just work out for your life. Right? There are people and churches that will teach this, that if you just have enough faith, your life will work out perfectly. You know? And if there's something going wrong in your life, then there's something wrong with your faith. That's just not true. Okay, this, what David experiences here is the normal life of someone following God. Um, First Peter says, don't be surprised when you encounter fiery trials. When bad things happen to you, don't be surprised. And so for David, you know, how does David face this? You know, attempted murder from the king. We also see that Saul tries to trick David in verse 25 by laying a trap for him. Oh, yeah, you can marry my daughter. And I know you're poor, so bring me 204 skins of the Philistines, right? I mean, Saul is out to get him. Um, he's got a bribe to, get to, to bribe Saul with the foreskins to marry his daughter. You know, how is David going to handle this? This brings us to point three. Point three. This is David up the gospel way. Up the gospel way. Your entire life, your disposition in your life is explicitly, exclusively determined by one thing. Okay? When setbacks come, as you experience normal life with ups and downs, your happiness, your feelings, your life will be determined by what you see. Okay? What you see will determine 
how happy you are with your life. What do I mean? Well, you have a choice in terms of what you focus on. Okay? What does David not seem to focus on in our passage? Seems like David could have focused on the one thing he didn't have. Right? And that was the kingship. He had this promise. God put him in the, I mean, God chose him, put his spirit on him, put him in the court of Saul, right? Had him fight Goliath. So now he's got national notoriety. I mean, David is being put into the place where he's going to take over, right? And then all of a sudden the king turns on him. David could choose to focus on that one thing that God hasn't done. And that's make him king yet, right? He could have done that. But he doesn't. He doesn't. David doesn't focus on that. We don't see him even thinking about that. Instead, even the narrator in telling the story of his life doesn't think about that, doesn't focus on that. Right? What does David see? Well, if David looks around, everything is going according to plan. Right? If you look around this chapter, you can see that everything is going according to plan. You can see God at work in David's life. And so the question for, for you is what do you focus on? When something goes wrong, when there's a setback in your life, what do you focus on? Like, do you focus on the setback? Do you focus on the thing that's happened that has caused everything to fall apart? Do you focus on the promises that you feel like aren't being kept? Or do you have eyes to see God in the midst of your life? I mean, in the midst of this, we see that all the people love David. Right? Verse 5. David went out, was successful wherever Saul sent him. Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of all Saul's servants. Verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David. For he went out and came in before them. And so what we see is that David has the popularity. He's, he's been chosen in a sense almost by the people. We also see that he's married, in, he's married into the king's family. Right? Look at Michael. Right? He marries Michael and so he has the king's daughter who loves him. That's not insignificant, right? David, the king hates you. The king is against you. The king wants you dead. But the king's daughter's into you. I mean, and not just into you, but the king's daughter loves you and is now married to you. So what does that make you? Son-in-law of the king, what does that make you? You're next in line. And if you have eyes to see, or if you don't and you're complaining to the Lord, God in his grace might say, boy, just, just look. Look what I'm doing. Look, you're now in the line. You weren't before. Right? You're married now into the family line. And so you're in line. Just be patient. And again, if you have eyes to see, then you can take courage there. So it's almost like God is saying, look, I've got you exactly where I want you. And I think 
for you, God would probably say the same thing. You know, you got, but you have to look. You have to see what is God doing in the midst of, of my life. And then just over and over and over again, you see that God is with David. He's got a relationship. He's got a relationship with God. You know, the king is after him, but the king of kings is on his side. And so, you know, David is getting protection that he can see, right? He evades the spear twice. Somehow God enables him to avoid Saul's spear. Every time he goes out in battle, he comes back with success because the Lord was with him. And it's like God standing behind him and thanks to that support, he's always, always successful. But then I think even you see God's protection in ways David can't see. You know, the whole thing with the Philistines and the foreskins, David had no idea that that was a trap from Saul to kill him. David had no idea. You know, and you think, well, God was protecting him anyways. And I just think, you know, how many times has that happened for us where we don't even know what's going on and yet God is protecting us? And then you find out later, oh my goodness, I can't believe that God was watching out for me. I mean, I got something else that happened to me this week. This one's kind of funny. Um, can't read this. Um, this is a piece of paper. Um, Dick and I have been in this great conversation about um, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? And, like, which is more important? What is most important about those two things? And, uh, and so the kind of person I am is that we're having this discussion. So I go back and I start reading and I start writing down every single reference to the cross of Christ in the New Testament, every single reference to the resurrection in the New Testament, right? And I'm writing these things down on this little piece of paper. I like to write small because I can fit a lot of stuff on a page. And I'm writing this down. And I went, I read through the whole, like the gospels. I read through the book of Acts. I read through Romans, first Corinthians, second Corinthians. I'm going through the whole thing, right? I'm getting all this stuff down. And if you remember um, Dick's last sermon, you know, where storing his sermon on the computer and he lost it, I'm thinking, okay, well, surely I'll be safe, right? Because I'm writing this down, right? This isn't on a computer somewhere. Well, guess what? I lost it. I lost it. And it was interesting because while I was doing this, I had a bad attitude. I was looking to prove Dick wrong, okay? Like, yeah, you know, I'm going to show him. I'll get all these verses and stuff. And so I'm going through this, and all of a sudden I lose it. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Like all, I mean, we're talking about 15 hours of work or so. You know, I mean, so not a small, I mean, it's not death or anything like that. I mean, there's, there's a lot worse things that could happen. But this is a huge amount of work. You know, and it's kind of one of those things where when you're done, you're thinking, I am not going to do that again. And so I was just sad. <laughs> I was just sad. I was frustrated. You know, I was kind of bitter. And, and I'm thinking, well, and here, here's what's interesting is that, while I'm without this thing for a couple of weeks, um, Dick and I are still talking, you know, and I'm talking even, I'm talking some to Mark and some to Chad, you know, and, and I'm realized some to Jackie and my heart began to change because I realized that I had a bad attitude. I realized that I wasn't understanding Dick's perspective and that I was feel, like, I was moving forward with arrogance and pride. And I wasn't listening. I was wanting to be right. You know, I didn't really care what the truth was. I wanted to find out that I was right. That's, that's what I was doing. And over the course of these two weeks, like God got a hold of my heart. And just it was kind of like God said, Stephen, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? 
Like, just open your eye. Why do you, you don't need to be right here. What's more important than you being right is what my word says. And I'm realizing, oh my goodness, like, this is really powerful. And now I'm not so bummed, really, about losing it because I feel like I learned the lesson that I probably needed to learn and what I was doing really wasn't going to end up meaning anything. Well, so then Thursday of this week, this last week, Thursday, I am, let's see, I was in the kitchen and I was standing next to, we have this counter, okay, and I'm standing there at the counter and I'm looking down, there's this pile of trash on the ground. Wasn't really sure, like, why it was there, but I looked down and this was sitting on the floor. And I said, oh my goodness, like, that looks like exactly, like, I pick it up. I'm like, it is. And I screamed. I was like jubilant. Like, I couldn't believe it. I'm not going to scream now. Um, but I, I, just, I, I could not believe it. And I was like, What's, how, how, what is this doing here? You know, and Jamie says, oh, yeah, Daddy, I'm sorry. I, um, I brought my trash can out from our bedroom, and I flipped it over to, like, shake it in the trash that's going to go out to the, to, the, to, the, to the trash can. And a few things fell out. I'm sorry, I didn't clean it up. And I'm like, sorry, it doesn't matter. Like, are you kidding? Like, you found this for me. Like, what? Like, what's going? Like, how did this? You know, ah, you know, and I'm freaking out because <laughs> I feel like I just got 15 hours of my life back. And, and there's like, oh, I can use this again. And um, but then I thought, like, this is truly amazing. This is truly amazing because not only did I think God caused me to lose this to protect me because this was leading me down a road that I didn't need to go. Right? This was leading me down a road of pride and arrogance, and, it just, and I wasn't in the right place to actually handle these truths effectively. But then I was thinking, so I must have been in Jamie's room, must have dropped it somehow, and then God worked it to get back. I mean, because you have no idea how, how hard I looked for this thing. But God must have worked it somehow into Jamie's trash can and left it there for three weeks or something, you know? And then... All of a sudden, instead of Jamie just picking up her trash bag and just taking it to the trash, God leads Jamie to bring her whole trash can, turn it upside down, dump it, right? So that this and some other stuff falls out. And I'm thinking, too, if this was the only thing that, fe- that fell out, my guess is responsible Jamie would have picked it up and thrown it away. But it was a bunch of stuff. It's like, oh, I don't want to deal with that right now. And so she moves on. And I'm thinking, all of this stuff, and I'm preaching this text, I'm studying it, and I'm thinking, David, God protected David in ways he couldn't see. And I just, it just hit me, and I thought, this is glory. Like, this is the God that we love, that cares for us like this, even when we don't know we need to be protected. And so, I don't know, I'm just, I'm excited about that. I think that's exciting that God would, that God would do that. I mean, it's huge. Like, our God really is that good for us. We just have to have eyes to see it. And if you can see what God is doing in the midst of your setbacks, you'll realize that it's not that things have failed. It's that God has put you in a place where he needs to teach you something. Right? The interruptions in that upward trend are typically for our good. Right? God works all things together for good to those who love him. Right? We just rehearsed that. Good doesn't mean they all work out right. It means that we come out looking more like Jesus. It means we come out, come out looking less like people that are enslaved to our emotions, people who are more connected to God and better able to see what he's doing in the world. And so this is God with us. And so, I mean, it's interesting because 
Like there's promises where God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You know, these promises sort of come true and we have experiences like this where we sense that God really was hand-holding us through something. You know, the Romans 8.28, we know that God works all things together for good. Romans 8.39, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things in the future nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God. And I know that if you're struggling today, it's easy to go, yeah, I hear that, but I'm just not sure if it's true for me. You know, how do I know if that really applies to me? Because you don't know what I'm dealing with. And so in terms of like, how do you know? I mean, the setbacks where we doubt the promises, these are the promises we doubt when we have setbacks, right? Like these are the things that are the hardest to actually believe are true. I mean, for me, when we're in the midst of the difficult times and in the midst of the setbacks, for me, I come back to Philippians 3 where Paul says, I just want to know Jesus. And he says the way that you know him and the power of his resurrection is to connect to him in his sufferings. Okay? It's to, it, he says that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul is saying here, he's, he's saying that it's in your setbacks. Okay, it's in the, the areas of life when things seem to be going wrong. Okay, it's precisely at the moments of your life when you're most tempted to think that God's not there. At those moments, your life looks most like the life of Jesus. Jesus, who deserved nothing but glory and yet was betrayed was misunderstood was attacked was mocked was spit on was beaten was tortured and then crucified when the setbacks come when that upward trend has a major dip at that place I think what the Bible would offer you is to say that that's when you can come to the cross. Come to the cross and realize that God is at that moment, he's shaping your life to look more like Jesus. And that's a path that leads you right. Because if you can get to the cross, if you can realize that that is what God is doing in your life, then you go running to the cross and you find in the cross that Jesus has taken all of the evil for you. He's died for your sins. He has paid the price. And the cross isn't the end, right? Because then the resurrection comes. And if God can make your life look like the crucifixion, then Paul says, when you recognize that connection, God will make your life look like the resurrection. And so you come to the cross because it like catapults you up into the resurrection. And this isn't just, like, this isn't just theology, okay? I mean, for me, this stuff is glorious because I think about this and it really gives me hope. But I know that sometimes it feels a little bit dry. It feels a little bit up in the air. Like, how does this really connect to life? And I guess I want to tell you that this story teaches us that Jesus 
wants to do this for you personally. Okay? He wants to come to you personally. And we know that because of Jonathan. Okay? This chapter starts with Jonathan. The first five verses. Now look what Jonathan does. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even the sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan, for David, I mean, imagine the encouragement. Imagine the encouragement, right? Because we don't know after the Goliath thing, what's Jonathan going to think? Right, Jonathan was the deliverer in chapter 14. Jonathan was next in line. He's the guy who's supposed to take over. How's Jonathan going to feel about David? And what God does for David in the midst of his struggles with the king is that God sends him the king's son. And when the king's son comes, the king's son says, I love you and I am committed to you. And I want you to know you have nothing to fear from me. Imagine the encouragement of that. So now God is providing for David, not just the king's daughter, but now the king's son. And this is Jesus for us. This is Jesus drawing near to you. Jesus who has knit his soul to yours. How do you know that? Well, it's because Jesus stripped himself when he was hung on the cross. It's because Jesus actually took his perfect life, his perfect righteousness, and he wraps it around you. And so God looks at you as though you are as perfect as Jesus. He gives you his own clothes. He gives you his sword, which is his word, his armor, the breastplate of righteousness, Ephesians 6 says. It's his righteousness, not yours, that covers and protects you. And he doesn't just, he doesn't just say it, but he makes a covenant, right? And he, he seals the covenant in his own blood. Like, that's how sure you can be that when you read about the love that Jonathan has for David, that Jesus is telling you, I love you even more. And that my love is designed to give you assurance and protection. My love is designed to guarantee you a future. A future with God forever. Let's pray. Jesus, this is such an amazing picture. Thank you. Thank you for giving us your clothes and your armor and your weapons. Thank you for giving us assurance that you, as the son of the king of kings, are not out to compete with us, but to love and lift us up. Father, if there are people here who haven't yet committed to you, would you draw them with the love of Jesus? you help them to see that the way out 
of, of enslaving emotions is to be loved by you and to have Jesus' love enwrap us. Draw many closer and more tightly to yourself, Father, today we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.